Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah. So we're in Living Islam with Purpose on page 22. So if you would like to follow along, if you search for Living Islam with Purpose, Dr. Omar Abdullah, you'll find the PDF. Actually, on my PDF, which is from the Oasis Initiative website, we're on page 22. There's another PDF from the Taba Foundation that page 36 it's a different page but we're on operational principle number five <coughs> so so as we usually say when we start uh, Allah preserve Dr. Omar and give us benefit from his knowledge in this life and the next in this paper he's giving five operational principles for how we can understand Islam such that it will be meaningful in whatever context that we're living in and especially for the context of Muslims in America the first principle that he mentions is uh, trusting reason and then the second one that he mentions is respecting dissent and the third one that he mentions is societal obligations and the fourth one was setting priorities right and number five is embracing maxims Embracing maxims. It says each of the four preceding operational principles constitutes a single set of closely related concepts. The next operational principle, which is the chief concern of this paper, is somewhat different. Maxims are concisely stated principles of Islamic law and practical rules of thumb. Maxims number in the hundreds and represent an entire literary tradition in Islamic law. As an operational principle, embracing maxims does not mean learning them all. It is sufficient to know relatively few. But Muslims should be aware that this valuable resource exists and ought to make good use of it. Maxims provide an invaluable source of Islamic edification and guidance, guidance which makes maxims a key component in the community's religious instruction. So I think it was the first... Yeah, when we first started these classes from 8 to 9, we did legal maxims for everyday life. I don't know if anyone was here for that. Bushra was. Yeah. Um, so, we covered those. Covered probably like, if I had to estimate, probably covered around like a couple dozen. Yeah, so not many. This is going to focus on five. It's going to focus on five. So basically what he's going to explain here is that what is this idea of the maxim? The maxim is essentially if you were to take a body of teachings in Islam and distill them down into a sentence, what would that sentence be? That's what these maxims are. And so what they do is they provide a really quick, powerful dose of knowledge that applies to many different areas and it's very small so then that becomes really good for uh, getting your mind in the right place that's also what he's trying to do with these operational principles right because as, as we said before in this paper the challenge is that when you have extremely large amounts of information how do you make sense of that information and this is an issue that at least in my personal experience with people I'm seeing kind of like more and more so people have access to random pieces of information in Islam 
like oh we believe this or we believe that or some some um, some other generalizations but we can't figure out how we're actually supposed to put them together properly so these maxims what they do is they they help to build the perspective and you build the perspective then things can fall in their right place so one of the works that's very famous in this regard is the work of Sheikh Ahmed al-Zarqa rahimahullah ta'ala the father of Sheikh Mustafa al-Zarqa who's the grandfather of Omar Zarqa and, uh, and and from the Irvine community so uh, Sheikh Ahmed what he does in that is he'll give the principle and then he'll explain it and then rather than give like a whole lot of examples of how it plays out he gives the exceptions because like it's a principle it's going to apply to a bunch of things so I don't need to know all of the applications I actually I just need to know the exceptions as long as I know the few exceptions then I know that I'm fine to use it wherever else I can use it right anyways maxims are important okay one of the things though that's you know just as like a side note is um uh generally speaking maxims are not generally used as evidences in and of themselves so like say you want to come to a ruling is this halal is this mubah is this or not that's the same thing is this mustahab is this wajib is it makruh whatever you don't say it's makruh because of this like legal maxim you have to use an actual evidence the legal maxim gives you the the framework it doesn't you can't generally you can't use it as a if you don't have anything else you can invoke it as like a secondary kind of consideration but they still lay the framework so the five core maxims he says in qawa'id al-kulliya and khams the five core legal maxims stand at the center of islamic law they are five they're agreed upon by all of the schools this number one is matters will be judged by their purposes and umur bi maqasidiha Al-umur bimaqasidiha. Matters will be judged by their purposes. So this is number one, right? Number one point is, you judge something based by what the intention and the purpose behind it is. And if you clothe it in a particular way, but it's still not that, it doesn't make it whatever you're claiming it to be. So, for example, give you a good, practical, non-profit American example. It says in the entryway that snacks are a recommended, don it should say recommended, donation of $1. If you actually sit there and take $1 from every person that takes every single snack and don't give them the snack if they don't give you the dollar, is it a recommended donation anymore? Is it a donation at all? No. It's a buy and sell, <laughs> right? So sometimes people will like give a gift but they expect you to give a gift in return it's not really a gift anymore it's more of like a transaction now right so you can call it a gift but it's not really a gift so the point is the the what is the intention behind it what is the purpose behind it is is the core question here matters will be judged by that um. number two is certainty will not be overturned by doubt and yaqeen la yazulu bishak Certainty will not be overturned by doubt. Uh, actually, doesn't he spend the whole rest of the paper explaining all of these? Yeah, I really shouldn't explain these, actually. <laughs> so that's number two. Number three is, harm must be removed. Harm must be removed. Number four, hardship must be alleviated. 
Al-Usr, he puts Al-Usr, Yajlibu Taysir, it's also said as Al-Mashaqqa Tajlibu Taysir. And number five is custom has the weight of law, Al-Ada Muhakkama. Al-Ada Muhakkama. Okay, so now he's going to go into each one. Maxim one, matters will be judged by their purposes. This maxim emphasizes intention and purpose. Actions and activities are not done for their sake alone. It is not enough to go through the motions. Most works must have direction and be carried out in a manner that is likely to achieve the rationales and objectives behind them. So the intention matters. The purpose matters. Why you're doing the thing matters. And uh, it emphasizes the importance of intention. They say that the validity of the act of worship is dependent upon the intention. The differentiating between various acts of worship is depending on the intention. Right? So if you pray for rakah in the middle of the day, is it dhuhr? Is it sunnah? Is it it's all by the intention, right? It looks exactly the same. Uh, they also say that the distinguishing uh, between acts of worship and acts of custom is by intention. So you could do something that is seemingly customary, habitual behavior like eating, drinking, sleeping. It's neutral, but it's it's affected by the intention. It becomes an act of worship. Running a legitimate business is morally neutral, but if it has a good intention, it can be good. If it has a bad intention, it can be bad, whatever it might be, right? Uh, for example, it is praiseworthy to visit Mecca and Medina, but the intention to go there in order to beg or steal turns the outwardly commendable act into a deplorable one, right? <laughs> <laughs> it literally happens. If if you you could go to Mecca, you can go to the Haram and the Kaaba in order to make tawaf, or you can go to the Kaaba in order to touch women. So completely different intentions. People do them, right? A'udhu billahi min shaitan wa ahzabihi. You know, the Prophet sallallahu said, "Whoever imitates a people belongs to them." And tashabbaha bi qawmin. So tashabbaha is different than tashabaha. They intentionally do what another people do, and there's like there's an intention behind it. They don't just look like them, but the the issue of the purpose comes in, All right? So he spends a lot of time. He spent not a lot of time, but he spends some time talking about that. We've talked about that before, but uh, that there's a difference. You know, the intention actually makes a difference. Uh, as we have seen, good intentions transform mundane individual acts into ethical or devotional ones. It also makes things that are seemingly little into things that are actually very big because the intention behind it can turn it into something big. And that's one of the things that's really, really important when we do something for a good cause is that we have to be, we have to have a good intention and we have to make sure that, you know, like we're here to gain Allah's pleasure. All these other things, they're all secondary, you know. And I, I think this is a big issue now because a lot of younger Muslims it's more of like it's become more of like an identity issue than it's become a religion issue right? like these are very different things to like be able to be part of a group of people that are somewhat marginalized and then I feel like part of the in crowd because I'm somewhat marginalized now and like whatever it might be that's that's fine on a material level but that's not religion like if, if I'm coming together for Allah's pleasure that's a different issue it might overlap with other things, but we have to make sure that the the intention is sound. Uh, the other, you know, this also it has many, many manifest manifestations. 
we've spent a lot of time in the past on intentions, so. Um, he says some interesting things here, though. So, for example, simple amusements like bowling parties and casual get-togethers to watch sporting events might have been considered frivolous in certain traditional Islamic settings. In the American Muslim community today, however, they, cons they constitute positive alternative pastimes. Right. So, like, you could actually have a good reason for that. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and play video games with my friends. And I, I know why I'm going. I don't know what their intention is, but I know why I'm going. <laughs> and I'm going to go have dinner with so-and-so. I don't know what their intention is, but I know what mine is, right? And uh, it's a really interesting concept. Ibn Taymiyyah indicates that the scope of this maxim includes the moral responsibility the persons and groups bear for the unintended consequences of potentially detrimental actions when those consequences are predictable and could have been avoided. Hmm. The companion Samura ibn Jundub had an obese son who would not follow his advice to eat in moderation. The Prophet ﷺ indicated to Samura that if his son did not control his eating habits and died from obesity, his death would be tantamount to suicide. Interesting, huh? <laughs> so there's part of this is not only to worry about the intention, but also the impact. They say that now, right? I'm not only asking you to consider your intent, but I'm also asking you to consider your impact. So it's a, it's a good concept. Like your intention, you're still responsible for a reasonable and predictable outcome from what you did. <laughs> like, you know, if you say you want to give advice and you give it in a really abrasive way and the person gets offended, and you're like, well, I didn't mean to offend you. Well, but you gave it in an abrasive way and it's reasonable to assume that if you give it in an abrasive way, someone's going to get offended. Now, if you didn't do it in that way and they still got offended, then now, like, you're not responsible for an ab abnormal, unpredictable outcome, right? But for an, a normal, predictable outcome, we are. The armistice of Hudaybiyah, which the Prophet ﷺ concluded with the Meccan idolaters in the 16th year of his prophecy, provides a useful illustration of how matters can only be fully evaluated in the context of their purposes and outcomes. So Hudaybiyah is a really important case study in this year, really important case study. The precedent set by this accord contrasts sharply with the human tragedy common to many armed conflicts when resistance and intransigence become ends in themselves and prevail against reason, peace, and the preservation of public welfare. So this is a really interesting issue, right? Uh, it's, it comes to one of the conversations that was mentioned to me recently. I won't give away the people involved in it. But someone uh, who is not from the U.S. and originally was commenting on like how like you guys love rebellion a lot. You know, like <laughs> it's such a like rebellion is your is your awesome <laughs> it's your default <laughs> you just it's you know it, there's cultural issues to this sometimes like it's there's a there's a it's part of like american culture you know like give me liberty or give me death is part of Amer don't tread on me it's part of american culture right <laughs> yeah stole land from everyone and talk the same nonsense but it's like it doesn't make any sense but you know that's the way the nefs works that's why we have to be down with the nefsiarchy and uh, but the um, 
the the thing is is that it's not just always like rebel so, okay so what's your end game what's your intent what's your intent behind this rebellion is it to just destroy everything or like what is what is going to be left afterwards and uh, so this is what he's talking about here initially the armistice of Hudaybiyah appeared to be a defeat for the Muslims and an incomprehensible setback for their cause by the way that doesn't mean you don't necessarily rebel like you might actually rebel but at least know why you're doing it right like Abu Hanifa funded rebellions by the way he funded at least two rebellions against the Khalifa he refunded a rebellion against the Umayyads he funded it, uh, sorry, refunded it. He funded a rebellion against the Umayyads. Both of them were rebellions of, like, he supported some of the Imams of Ahlul Bayt. Mm -hmm. He, against the Umayyads, and then the Abbasids took over and he didn't like them either, and he funded another one. <laughs> so, things are complicated, more than they sometimes seem to be. Initially, the armistice of Hudaybiyah appeared to be a defeat for the Muslims and an incomprehensible setback for their cause, but its outcome soon revealed the Prophet's purpose and showed the treaty to be one of his greatest achievements. At the time of the treaty, the Meccan idolaters had become weak, and the Prophet was, an unrivaled, was in an unrivaled position of strength. He could have easily defeated the Meccans militarily. Instead, he concluded a ten-year pact of peace with them. The Meccans insisted, however, upon putting disrespectful language and demeaning concessions in the treaty. For many of the Prophet's companions, his acceptance of the treaty came as an immense shock. They took it to be an un insufferable insult to the Prophet and Islam. For many of them, the treaty severely tried their faith. But the Qur'an proclaimed the armistice a manifest victory. Mubina. Mm. He uh, gave you a manifest victory. That's Hudaybiyah. That's not Fath Mecca. Fath Mubina is Hudaybiyah. One of the companions approached the Prophet ﷺ and asked, O Messenger of Allah, is it truly a victory? He replied, Yes, by God in whose hand is my soul, it is a victory. So what happened? The Muslims are going, they're going to make, they wanted to make Umrah. And they stop outside Me Mecca in this place of Hudaybiyah, right? And they come and there's like a debate and a back and forth. And they, they start to draw the treaty. And he says, write Bismillah. You know, and they said, we're not going to write Bismillah, we're going to write Bismillahumma. So they do that. And then he says, from Muhammad Rasulullah. And then they say, we don't believe that you're Muhammad Rasulullah. And Ali is the scribe. We don't believe that you're Muhammad Rasulullah, then we wouldn't be having this problem right now. Right, Muhammad ibn Abdullah. And Ali says, I'm not going to erase that. Like, I'm not going to strike that part out. I'm not going to strike his, his title out, sallallahu alayhi wa So the Prophet tells him, show me where it is and I'll do it. So he does it. And then they write their agreement that you're not going to make Umrah this year, you're going to go back and you can make it next year. There's going to be 10 years of peace. Anyone who leaves our city to yours, you have to send them back. And anyone who sends your, leaves your city to ours, we don't have to send them back. They had all of these, and everyone was like, this is, this is, this is uh, crazy. What are we, we finally in a position of power and we give them all of this? Yeah. And you had people like right after that that it happened. They came and they tried to. Seek refuge in the Muslims And the Prophet them wouldn't take them Because like he already made the agreement So I mean it's a really interesting uh, th And there's that whole fitna Like Omar basically was like You know really shook by it And he asked Abu Bakr And Abu Bakr was like hey You know he's the messenger of Allah <laughs> Just And then The Prophet told them to shave their heads anyways And like slaughter their animals And they would they didn't they they like weren't gonna do it, and then his wife told him he should do it. Lead lead by example, do it first, and then they'll follow. And they followed, and like all these things happened. Hudaybiyah was like a big big thing. 
So he says the armistice of Hunabiya created an atmosphere of reconciliation and released all clans from earlier tribal alliances. The Arabs were now free as individuals to listen to the Prophet's message and assess their personal stances toward it without the danger of violating kinship loyalties. The treaty also granted the Muslims access to Mecca, which gave their faith greater legitimacy in Arab eyes. Within months, the consequences of the armistice revealed the farsightedness of the Prophet's decision. It established a Pax Islamica in Arabia and began Islam's meteoric, meteoric rise. Zuhri, one of the teachers of Imam Manik, wrote, no victory in Islam prior to Hudaybiyah was anything like it. Before, people would fight whenever they met. After the armistice, war was suspended. People were no longer afraid of each other. They would meet, speak, and argue at great length. Look at how it is when people are afraid of each other. They can't even talk. No one with the power to reason was spoken to about Islam, but then he embraced it. In those two years before the Meccans broke the armistice, the prophet who entered the faith the people who entered the faith were equal to the number of all those who had embraced it during the preceding 16 years. As much as any other operational mechanism, the maxim matters will be judged by their purposes constitutes a clear directive that Muslims live Islam with purpose. It sets a standard by which present activities in the Muslim community must be reassessed and future undertakings planned and carried out. So that's maxim number one. Inshallah, next time we'll continue with maxim number two.